Part One, Chapter Three of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker. Part One, Chapter Three. While he was waiting for the arrival of the medicine, making furtive trips to the post office twice each day to forestall the possibility of embarrassing questions at home, other things were happening which gave his thoughts a slightly different turn. His father came home one night from a meeting of the church board, of which he was chairman, and announced that they had voted to hold revival meetings. His mother sighed, for she knew it meant two weeks of unusual effort, with nightly pilgrimages to the church, prayer meetings in her front room, and the added responsibility that would be hers because of her prominence in the affairs of the church. Kurt was a little sorry, too. Not that he minded the meetings. He was used to church-going. It was something to be as little questioned as eating or going to school. As long as he could remember, he had been to church two and often three times every Sunday. He had gone with his parents in the morning and sat quietly between them during the hymn and sermon, drowsing sometimes, sometimes amusing himself by fitting together incongruous titles in the hymn-books to make ridiculous, half-intelligible sentences. After church he had always stayed for Sunday school, being promoted from one class to another as he grew older, now with a woman for teacher, now with a man, sometimes in a class with girls and boys, sometimes with boys only. He had never liked Sunday school particularly, but some of the stories had been worth hearing and the puzzles and riddles and jokes in the papers he brought home were fun. Occasionally, too, the classes were amusing. Very few studied their lessons, since there was no compulsion to do so. The result was often a rambling discussion which, beginning with Moses and the bulrushes, or Elisha and the she-bears, was very likely to conclude with Ty Cobb, or the reason for the greenness of leaves. The teacher he liked best was a young man called Sprigg, Mr. Sprigg had an amazing fund of inexact information on all sorts of subjects, and a talent for digression. So while the lessons usually suffered, the forty minutes sped, and that, to Kurt, seemed more important. Revivals were different, though. From former experience he knew there would be embarrassing moments, moments when he would feel the intense self-consciousness that was so painful to him. The medicine was slow in coming. For two weeks Kurt waited, almost ashamed at last, to inquire of the postmaster for the expected package. In the meantime the meetings had begun, and the thing had happened again, and the two events were not entirely unrelated. The meetings had started on Tuesday. Kurt had gone Tuesday night with his father and mother, curious, as everyone was indeed, to learn what the evangelist was like, and what the coming two weeks were likely to bring. The Methodist church, to which the Greys belonged, was some five blocks from their house, so they had started soon after seven in order to be on hand when the meeting began. The main auditorium, when the Greys entered, was brightly lighted by three chandeliers, whose glaring bulbs always hurt Kurt's eyes and made him sleepy. The heavy golden oak benches, many of them, were already occupied by the people they knew, talking and laughing in low voices over the backs of the pews with their neighbors. By the time the last bell rang its three clanging notes, the church was fairly well filled. 
and when the door leading into the wing opened, there was an expectant stillness. Four people appeared and took their places on the rostrum, a fourth chair being hurriedly lowered over the green curtain by the minister, Mr. Benson, who then stood behind the pulpit looking a little worried at the responsibilities he was assuming. He was a tall, spare man with a face that was heavy and long, black hair, thin at the top, and enormous hands. In the deep, hollow voice that Kurt always thought sounded exactly like the sounds he had laughed at when he was scrubbing out the cistern for his mother, the minister began, Brothers and sisters, as you know, we are inaugurating tonight a two-weeks evangelistic campaign. There are many things I might say to you as we inaugurate these meetings, but I prefer to let the good brother here, who is to be your spiritual guide for the next two weeks, say them. I know, all pulling together, great things will be accomplished for the kingdom of Christ in Barton during the next two weeks. I am very glad to present to you your new guide and friend, Brother Jerome Shantz, whose long career as a gospel worker, after his miraculous conversion, speaks for itself. I will let Brother Shantz talk to you now and introduce his party. The Reverend Mr. Benson bowed awkwardly to a little round man behind him and stepped down from the rostrum to the front pew where he sat alone during the rest of the service, his great arms stretching along the back of the seat. Mr. Shantz was on his feet immediately, his red face gleaming in the light, the thick lenses of his spectacles shining like the headlights of an automobile. Indeed, he rather suggested a steam engine of some sort. His arms, when he stood up, seemed ridiculously short and fat, and they moved with a piston-like regularity as he talked. Even his voice was steamy, as if it were being forced up out of his mouth by spasmodic explosions, deep down in the round body. "'Welcome, folks,' he began. "'I'm glad to see so many of you out tonight. As your pastor has said, we're to work together for the next two weeks, and I want each and every one of you—here he pointed a fat forefinger at four or five people in different parts of the church—I want each and every one of you to feel you are my friends and that I'm yours. We are going to do great things here, as Brother Benson has said, but we'll all have to help. And now I'll make you acquainted with my helpers, who will want to know you too. This, and he pointed to the young woman, blonde, pretty in a conventional sort of way, is my wife, Mrs. Chance. She will take charge of the women's groups and play the organ, to say nothing of running me. He looked delighted when the anticipated stir of laughter came to him. Mary Shantz rose and smiled and seated herself again. And this, here he pointed to a sallow young man with oily black hair and an obtrusively checked suit, is Mr. Brill, Mr. Dan Brill, who will direct the singing and work with the boys. He is a regular fellow and you'll all like him. And now, as singing is an important part of any meeting at any church, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, as it says in the Bible. The more noise you make, the better the Lord will like it. Let's sing. Dan Brill took charge. He talked rapidly, like an actor, Kurt thought. He presented for the approval of the congregation his own pamphlet of songs, price only thirty-five cents, which he wished to use during the services. A number were sold at once, and the money collected by two small boys, delighted at this unexpected opportunity of managing the long-handled collection boxes that looked like wooden corn poppers. With Mrs. Chance at the organ, its stops wide open, 
they sang an old one to begin with with let a little sunshine in brill didn't like the way they did it he made them sing it again and yet again shouting constantly between breaths louder get into it sing now all together and whacking the book against his hand in time to the music until finally everyone in the church was either singing or pretending to brill's eye would pick out the silent ones and after a shouted come on you sing open your mouth if you can't sing make a noise and brill's finger pointed directly at them they would grin sheepishly and start in let a little sunshine in shine in brill would echo in a booming voice let a little sunshine in open wide the portal open wide the door let a little sunshine in kurt was not too sure of his voice but he sang nevertheless there was something senseless and jolly about the tune like a merry-go-round the church hymns in the thick green book like old hundred or how firm a foundation were solemn and when he had been to detroit once and heard them in a big church with a great organ booming they had been thrilling they made your spine tingle but these were just a jolly racket they sang several songs until mr brill with drops of perspiration rolling down his pale face said well that'll do for now folks you've done pretty well i'll have you raising the roof off of this church every night and sat down nothing exciting happened the evangelist outlined his plan for a campaign a plan which called for nightly meetings daily cottage prayer meetings in various homes throughout the town and a number of special sessions for various groups he urged everyone to come to all meetings to bring neighbors to pray for success and after another song dismissed them kurt went then to the front of the church and remained as close to the wall as he could while his parents were being presented to the campaigners with the effusiveness their position as church leaders demanded kurt didn't want to shake hands but he couldn't escape and this he heard his mother saying is our son kurt kurt came to them dropping his cap as he came and extended his hand his eyes fixed on the foot-worn green carpet mr chance's clasp was firm and so strong it made his fingers tingle mrs chance didn't offer her hand and he silently thanked her for it her smile he saw when he stole a look was nice brill's fingers were damp and clammy the next night much the same sort of thing occurred except that there was a choir composed mostly of girls with old aeneas trench who was always in the choir and who always sang loudly and off-key and two young fellows who came mrs gray whispered to her husband because the girls were singing they sang many songs brighten the corner where you are will there be any stars in my crown throw out the lifeline and a new one what am i willing to pay mr brill had them sing this one many times first all the women then all the men then both together a song to think about he called it then after a very long prayer by mr benson a prayer in which no one it seemed was overlooked mr chance talked he didn't preach like mr benson he just talked and kurt thought it much more interesting he told first about his being at one time a railroad engineer he spoke with pride of the great locomotive 
and of the responsibility his job involved. Then he told about losing his job, and being in Milwaukee alone, without friends, about going into the city rescue mission, where he was given hot coffee, and where he found Christ. Everyone was interested. In spite of his almost ridiculous appearance, his build, his flailing arms, his flashing spectacles, and his shining head, there was something about the man that made the congregation listen. Kurt saw that even Mame Seligman, in the choir, had stopped giggling behind her songbook. He spoke of the great joy that had come to him then, and of the happiness that was surely in store for all those who would accept Christ for their Savior. "'Are you right with Jesus?' he asked. "'Are you giving Jesus a square deal?' He stopped then. There was another song, and the announcement that on the following Sunday, at three o'clock, there would be a special meeting for men and boys only. That night, Kurt lay awake for much longer than was his custom. He was impressed by Mr. Chance, and puzzled. What did he mean, exactly, by finding Christ? Kurt had heard the expression so many times, in church and Epworth League meetings, that it had become a label to him of a sort, but of what sort, when he came to ask himself, he did not know. Indeed, he had never thought much about it. Never before had the question come to him so directly. And he wondered, if it should come to him, and him alone, as demanding an answer, how could he reply? He had always taken it for granted, when the preacher spoke of finding Jesus, or being saved, of being a Christian, that he was on the right side. And the preacher had too, apparently, for he had never talked to him about it. But he wasn't sure. Still, he thought, now that he had stopped the terrible sweet indulgence, he was perhaps as good as many of the older people who professed to have been saved, and whom he had heard testifying and praying lengthily. And yet with him there had been no experience such as Mr. Chance hinted at, and seemed to think so necessary. What was it like, anyway, this experience? A great happiness flooded over me, Mr. Chance had said. The gates of my soul were open to the sunshine of Jesus' grace and love. Nothing like that had ever happened to Kurt, and he fell asleep wondering about it. Saturday they had supper earlier than on other evenings, for Mr. Gray had to relieve Jeff at the store, which was always kept open until nine o'clock on Saturdays. So Kurt had a chance to get to the post office once more before it closed to ask about his package. To his joy it had come. It was not large, disappointingly small indeed, considering that it had cost him a full half of his savings. He put it under his coat, where he could press it close against his ribs, and hurried home and up to his room. The medicine, when he opened the carton, looked like slightly greenish water and the directions were disappointing. No result was promised for two or possibly three months. But the patient was urged not to give up hope, but to take a spoonful each night before retiring and await results. There was no meeting at the church on Saturday night, and the Sunday morning service was just like that of any other Sunday morning, except that there were more people there and the choir was larger. In the afternoon, after dinner, when his father suggested that the two of them go to the men's meeting, Kurt reluctantly agreed. He was half afraid of what he might hear there to confirm his fears about himself, and yet the possibility that he might acquire some new knowledge, 
knowledge of which he felt the need so urgently, drew him, and he went. He had seen provocative cards about the town. Several had been left on the buffet tops in his father's store. Mr. Chance's beaming picture appeared prominently in one corner, and across the top the caption, Five hot cakes for men only, bring your own syrup. It didn't sound very religious to Kurt, but it worked, apparently, for when they came into the church it was already well filled with men and boys, boys of Kurt's age and older, some of whom he was sure had never been in the church before. He wondered if they too could be curious, just as he was. There was no one to play the organ, so Mr. Brill started off with, We're marching to Zion, and soon everyone was singing. They weren't all on the key, but they made a great deal of noise, and the leader seemed pleased. After the inevitable prayer by the pastor, Mr. Chance came to the front of the rostrum and began talking. He spoke first of the evils of swearing, then about gambling, and then drinking. Nothing new, Kurt thought, but he waited patiently. What he had hoped for, and dreaded, came at last. And now, boys, a few words to you. Just because you are young doesn't mean you are without sin. No, indeed. One of the blackest sins in the world is a sin some of you boys are guilty of. Kurt sat very still, his hands gripping the seat at his side. He tried to look unconcerned, but he felt that he was pale. The old fear climbed up numbingly through his body like chilling poison. What the red-faced man on the platform had to say was exactly what the medical leaflet had told him. Only this, coming forth in the explosive and steamy utterance of a man, filling a whole room with its echoing, was doubly impressive. Mr. Chance, too, gave some illustrations of horrible things that had happened to boys who had let this insidious vice get hold of them. Not only was it fatal to the body and mind, but it was a grievous sin, one that could be wiped out only by the sincerest repentance. He went on then to talk to the older men, considering the sins of adultery and fornication, things which Kurt did not understand very well, and indeed could not listen to very attentively, because of the thoughts that swirled and pounded in his head. He felt slightly sick, and when it was over they were free to go home, and he was glad. His father only said, Pay attention to what he says, Kurt. Playing with yourself is bad business. I'm glad you're a clean boy. Kurt almost choked then. Why couldn't his father have told him years ago if he knew, and saved him this misery he was enduring now? Saved his life, maybe. The fear of what he had done now took on a moral and religious significance that he had not previously considered, and it mingled in his mind with a bitterness towards his father that he could not subdue. The meetings went on, and every night Kurt was there sitting between his father and mother, but always a little closer to Mrs. Gray. As they progressed, Mr. Chance's talks became more positive and more fervid. Sin, the world, the devices of the devil which lurked unsuspected all about, in dancing, card-playing, in the theater, all these he denounced hotly, and with a sincerity no one could doubt. His appeals, too, became more frequent and more searching. 
he began to take note of those in the congregation who came regularly, but who, it was apparent from their manner, were not church members. There was always a little fringe of these outsiders, and the fringe grew nightly as word of the evangelist's oratorical powers went abroad. They came in, usually, after the meeting had begun, sat in the back seats, and after the benediction hurried out before anyone had a chance to speak to them. Some of these people Kurt knew by sight. Old Dan Buck, a fat, white-bearded farmer who did truck gardening on the edge of town. Bert Crandall, a puffy-faced young man whom Kurt disliked instinctively, and about whom he had heard older boys at school whisper mysterious things. And Mabel, Mabel whom he didn't know. She was a pretty woman with very white hair, who ran a little popcorn wagon on the main corner near his father's store. His mother, he knew, never spoke to her. And whenever she was mentioned, his father and mother would exchange wise glances and laugh a little disdainfully. Everyone knew Mabel. She was a bad one. The others Kurt didn't know. But there they were, night after night. And Mr. Shantz more and more directed his steamy thunderings at this outer fringe. At last, one night, after an unusually impassioned picture of the dangers of a life of sin, and the contrasting joys and compensations of those who were saved, he invited all repentant ones to come forward and surrender themselves to Christ, while the choir sang, Just as I am. It was a tense moment. The wavering, slow, sad tune seemed to palpitate in the walls of the church, to fill it like damp air almost to drip from the rafters and window-peaks. Kurt felt something moving and stirring within him, as he never had before. Just as I am, without one plea, save that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Was this thing the experience he had been wondering about? There was no response from the fringe of sinners, and Mr. Chance talked again, there was almost a sob in his voice. Will all those who already know the joy of being safe in Jesus' arms stand? There was a creaking of seats. What should he do? His mother rose slowly, and then his father, and then, ashamed, he too quickly got to his feet, although something told him over and over, sneeringly told him, You're a coward, a coward, a coward. What are you getting up for? You're a sinner. You've not repented. You're afraid. Mrs. Chance had come down into the congregation and was talking in a low voice to some woman a row or so behind. He could hear only snatches of what she was saying through the reiterated verse of the song, Repentance, Jesus saves, loves to all, sister, you are tired, evil ways, come now. And a moment later, there was a loud sobbing, and the woman, a tall, slender woman, who lived alone on the street in back of the greys, and who often did sewing for his mother, leaned heavily on the arm of Mrs. Chance and started to the front of the church. Amen, amen, God be praised. Who else is brave enough to take this great step? O oh, brothers, O oh, sisters, if you only knew the joy and peace it would bring you, the peace that passeth understanding. Won't you do it? Won't you do it now, tonight? Don't turn your back on Jesus. He's calling you, 
calling so tenderly. Won't you come, folks? Won't you come? Another verse of the song. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Two more stumbling penitents at the altar. Something was pulling at Kurt. His throat ached. His eyes burned with desire to step out and go too, cleansing himself of sin. But something stronger held him back, and the meeting closed. So it was, each night during the week, until the next to the last meeting, Sunday. Each night Kurt had been roused to a pitch of excitement that was unlike anything he knew. An intense desire mingled with an intense shame. The excitement of a book was different. The excitement of the terror he had put so resolutely behind him was different, yet less different, for there, too, was a mingling of shame in the sinning, which made the indulgence sweeter. Two forces pulling, pulling in opposite directions, and the boy in the center bearing all the strain, and wondering dumbly which force would finally claim him. The talk had its usual effect, but in place of the customary song following it, Mr. Shantz announced that Lottie Garber would sing a solo. Lottie was a high school senior with a round face, soft dark hair, and a very red mouth. She had a clear soprano voice, which his mother disliked because it tremoloed, but which Kurt loved to hear. She had been sitting in the back row of the choir beside Jerry Keller, her beau. They both wrote things to each other when no one was looking. Kurt had seen the hymn book Lottie used, and it was scribbled full of notes. Silly, he thought. Tonight she sang a song that had a melody very much like that of a waltz that had been singing through Kurt's head for days. The words were pretty, but Kurt wondered why Jerry was grinning so foolishly all the while Lottie was singing. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear ringing in my ear the Son of God discloses. Oh, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It was not until weeks later that Kurt discovered, quite by accident, the book she had sung it from. The words, The Son of God, had been marked out, and in Jerry's handwriting, Jerry Keller inserted. No wonder he was grinning. Lottie was singing a love song for the mutual delight of the two of them. But when she sang it that night, Kurt did not know, and it seemed to him sweet and appealing. She sang the last lingering note, and for a moment the church was silent. Then Mr. Shantz began appealing for converts. He told how God had blessed his efforts in Barton, and how, at this climax of the campaign, he hoped for even greater results. The appeal went forth. Mrs. Shantz and Brill were going through the back of the church, talking to individuals here and there in voices of droning persuasion. Some looked sullen, but most seemed simply ashamed and embarrassed. Kurt could sympathize, for he felt the same struggle going on in himself. The almost irresistible attraction of being for once in his life heroic in an important way, a way that mattered, and the shame that hung, why, he could not say, like a weight upon him. Would there be an opportunity for him? He hoped, he feared, and he did not know which emotion was the stronger. And then it came. Are there none of you church members, perhaps? 
he heard the explosive voice saying, who have fallen from the great ideal, who feel now a new birth of the Spirit, and who want to make a fresh start, a fresh avowal of your faith in Christ as the great Savior of men. Brothers, sisters, who will be the first to come? Come on, folks. Are you all satisfied with yourselves? Is there nothing in your lives that you are ashamed of, that you want to be rid of, washed clean of? Oh, you young folks out there, you young men and young women, what about you? Why not confess your evil ways and be forgiven? Though your sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be washed whiter than snow. God is love, folks. He will forgive you, however great or however small your transgression. Can't you see him bending down to you, stretching out his beseeching hands to you, pleading with you to come? There is a fountain filled with blood, folks, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and all who wash beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. His voice rose like a chant, filling the room, as the two gleaming spots that were his eyeglasses swayed back and forth. Won't you come, folks, won't you come? Don't do it for me, do it for Jesus. Learn the peace and joy that only this great step can bring into your hearts. Ye must be born again, he said. This is the time, folks, now, tonight. He stands knocking at the doors of your hearts, folks. Take him in, for he may never pass your way again. Take Jesus into your lives. Get acquainted with Jesus. Come now, now, now. Come and shake hands with Jesus. The voice seemed to come straight to Kurt. He hardly dared lift up his head. Was Chance looking at him? The two gleaming lenses in the glare of the light seemed peering with a blind yet penetrating insistence into his very heart. He felt his face and ears burning, but his hands were cold. He was shivering. Eyes, eyes everywhere seemed to be focused accusingly on him. Was his mother's arm urging him to go up there? Was she saying inside her, Be brave, be different. What do you care what people think? If you are doing the thing that you think is right, let the rest of them think what they please. Was she saying that? Near him, a seat creaked, and without raising his eyes, he could see that Gertrude Bowles, the president of the Epworth League, had arisen. He could hear the rustle of her dress as she moved down the aisle and towards the rostrum. Someone else came from farther back. Amen! Praise the Lord! said Mr. Shantz and he was echoed by two or three old men who sat near the front. Will no one else come? Is there no one else brave enough to take this stand for Jesus tonight? Almost against his will, and yet with a surge of feeling that swept like a thundering, inundating wave, Kurt suddenly found himself on his feet, moving towards that impelling voice and standing red-faced, almost defiant, before the curving oak rail of the rostrum. What happened after that he hardly knew. There was a prayer for those precious young souls who have dedicated themselves to the service of the Master. Everyone sang, Blessed be the tie that binds. There was a confused buzzing murmur of voices about him. There were faces swimming in hard, shattering light. There was Brill's hand clinging pallidly to his. There was a sharp clap on his shoulder from Mr. Shantz. There was his mother's arms around his shoulders. Blessed be the tie that binds. At last he was out in the night, 
under the cold far stars walking between his father and mother they were proud of him he knew and he was glad now with the great gladness of youth for what he had done hard as it had been during the few interminable minutes he had stood before the rostrum he had prayed for forgiveness prayed as passionately as on that afternoon of realization that he had done something to himself and there was now a satisfaction an implanted hope in his mind that in the sight of god he was less guilty that his repentance would surely save him from the consequences of his sin end of part 1 chapter 3